There you go. John always has to turn it on because I'm technologically challenged here. So, <laughs> all right. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were a slave to those that by nature that is not God. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You reserve days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You dare me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And through my condition was a trial to you. You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as the angel of God as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be much more a good purpose and not only when I present it with you. My little children, for who I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am repacked about you. Let's pray. Father, um, I just pray that each of uh, the congregants here would open their hearts to the Holy Spirit and uh, listen to your word and receive it, Father. It, uh, you are the unbelievable God, and it's so hard for us to believe what you tell us because we've not experienced it anywhere else, that you really love us and that you've given your life for us, Father. Help us in our unbelief, Lord. And I pray for the speaker that you would speak through him. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Larry and Jorgen. If you like titles, the first command. And the title is uh, the fun fact I want to bring to you this morning. I told uh, my youngest who likes to give out lots of fun facts, that's one of his catchphrases, fun fact, and then here comes information. So here's this morning's fun fact, which I then told my family, and they all said, that's not a fun fact. Uh, here's the fun fact. It's taken Paul four and a half chapters to get to his very first command. Fun fact, right? That's his, and they said, that's not a fun fact. And then Karen, my wife, started looking up fun facts and was like, some lipsticks have fish scales in them. That's a fun fact. This is a fun fact. 
it's for, and, and I had you in mind because you are a Bible nerd, and I say that with all affection and, and love for you, but it's taken Paul all of four and a half chapters to get to his first command, which I, I find is something and instructive for my own heart, because if you've read the book of Galatians and you've been with us for any amount of time, we've said often, Paul is coming in hot. He is flustered, and that continues into chapter 4 that Larry and Jorgen read for us this morning. There's a lot of heat and um, intensity within this letter because of who they are, where they are, and, and how they had so quickly gotten off course. Paul uses a, a force in his language. But what's interesting is that he doesn't come in with shoulds and musts and do's, but questions and consideration and a whole lot of reminders of the story of God, of who he is and what he's accomplished in Jesus. He doesn't come in with, here's all the things you need to do to get it all together. He comes in with questions and consideration and mostly reminders of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished throughout history and what he's inviting them into. And so before we get to that command, there's going to be a reminder, a command, and then a context and plea. This church was wayward, again, towards religion and addition to the gospel. And Paul reminds them of their identity. Last week, Mike got into how they were children and heirs. And he continues building them back towards life and does so by reminding them here in this text, verse 8 and forward, of who they were before Christ. Formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to that which by nature are not gods. He's reminding them that their life before Jesus was slavery. And if you've read any of Paul's letters, some of the, his favorite imagery that he employs over and over and over again is that of the Exodus. He doesn't fabricate stories. He, he draws from the biblical story and uses that language, that imagery, that reality for God's people throughout history and employs it into the life of the church. And he says, you all formally, before Jesus, were slaves. Not just you were bad people and then Christ came and you're good people. Not just you were immoral people and now you're moral people. You were not religious and now you've taken up this new religion. Paul shows that you were once slaves and Christ brought freedom. Which kind of pushes against uh, our tendency and our beliefs that we like the famous Invictus poem, are masters of our fate. We are captains of our soul. The Bible says that sounds nice, but it's just not true. You weren't in control. I was not in control of my own destiny. I was a captive to idols. I was a slave to sin. You're enslaved to that which by nature are not gods. In verse 9, he calls them the elementary principles of the world. And this is not language that is commonly used in our world and society. We may more talk about forces, powers that are kind of this invisible mystery behind the scenes that we can't really articulate or quantify. But it's true of every human on planet Earth. We're always worshiping someone or something. 
I, I don't have the quote, but I've used it before. I often go back to David Foster Wallace's uh, famous speech at Kenyon College called This Is Water, where he, from a secular perspective, just goes at great lengths and beautifully shows how we all worship, and it's kind of the default operating. Did you ever finish Infinite Jest? His book, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's takes an infinite amount of time to uh, finish such book. I think that might be on my end of the, yeah, I want to read that sucker. Um, anyways, <laughs> we can talk about that later. Yeah, stick to the notes, okay. Well, Harold Best, he says this, uh, worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. And, and I would submit that that's true of every person. We all by nature, are worshipers. Again, we might not use the language of worship and devotion, but it's just simply true. I think it's Harold Best who used the terms that we as human are unceasingly outpouring. Our attention, our devotion, our resources, it's continuous. And we, since we're so advanced and uh, yeah, just so smart. We don't use the terms, you know, Zeus and Athena and Diana. We don't have the temples as they did in the ancient Roman world. But we are constantly searching after power, security, comfort, control. We're, we're looking to increase our health, our wealth, our religiosity. Whatever it may be that we hold is ultimate, humans are constantly doing that. I think it's a helpful reminder for us to remember, as Paul does remind this church here, what was it for you before Jesus? Some of you may have been uh, in the church all your life. Jesus saved you at a young age. You have that beautifully boring testimony that I pray my kids have. Like, I came to church, I believed in Jesus, and he protected me from a whole lot of stuff. And I say, hallelujah, isn't God strong and powerful and great and good? Others of you don't have that story. Uh, you have a different kind of story, and you can see maybe a little bit more tangibly than the church kids of us in this room that Christ rescued you out of a whole hot mess. Yes, you see that slavery imagery, and you go, that was me. Others of us need to use a little bit of imagination of what life might look like apart from Jesus. But what was that for you? Then the good news comes in, it breaks in, and Jesus rescues, frees, and is worthy of attention and devotion. And we get the best news of all in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, and I love this little switcheroo that he does, or rather, to be known by God. And then the call, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world? This is the beauty and security of the Christian faith, that there is access to know God. There is a pathway to come to understand who God is and what he's like, and that pathway is Christ. And the good or even better news than us being able to understand a bit about God, not everything about him because he's infinite, we're not, is that God knows us, that he sees us, and loves us and understands us as humans individually. The strength isn't simply in our doing or in our knowing, but in God's secure grip on and knowledge of his people. I've used the illustration before. It's one of my favorite images, and hey, it fits for a family dedication Sunday, is that of a parent and a child crossing a street. 
typically at a certain age uh, or until a certain age, you parents teach your kids, hold my hand. You go, okay, and they hold your hand. Now, is the kid safe because of the strength of their grip? No. They're safe because of the security and strength of the parent that is holding them, that is guiding them, that is keeping them. Uh, and, and I think that's the image here of us. Yeah, we're able to know God, that he's given us this pathway. We reach up and we, we can grasp and hold and, and know and understand God. But the better news is that he is holding and knowing and keeping us. And there's a beautiful balance and dance within the Christian faith. And again, camps form and one wants to emphasize the grip of the kid and the other wants to emphasize the grip of the dad. And you're like, let's just worship. Jesus, and he's good, and we're responsible, and we don't have to divide and anyways, stick to the notes, John. <laughs> then as life goes on, we know all too well for ourselves and others that there are forces at work in the world that would pull back and derail and dehumanize and threaten that relationship. There's a reality at work here with a mystery. The reality is this, there are real evil forces in our world at work. The mystery is it's not necessarily quantifiable, measurable, even always detectable. It's not like Ghostbusters that you can go in and be like, oh yeah, there's a demon. But there's just these forces and principles at work in the world. There's a famous psychologist M. Scott Peck, his best known book is The Road Less Traveled, I think in the late 70s. And as he was a secular practicing psychologist, psychiatrist, he uh, was noting the fact that some of his patients and clients just simply were completely and utterly resistant to this work. And you can't, in popular psychiatry, call that or people evil, but he was reflecting on what is this. And so he wrote a book called People of the Lie. And in it, this secular psychologist, psychiatrist says this, evil then is the force residing either inside or outside of human beings that seeks to kill life or liveliness. And goodness is the opposite. Goodness is that which promotes life and liveliness. The evil create for those under their dominion a miniature sick society. The evil create for them under their Dominion, a miniature sick society. Jesus in John 10 would say that the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. What's striking about the letter of Galatians is that the sick society for them and life killing for them was inside the church. And it was maybe to us something that would seem at first glance innocuous. A couple extra rules to follow, adhere to the law. I gave the history of it a couple weeks ago. Like stuff to us that would seem maybe normal within church culture. Not all that bad. Weird to us. Again, if somebody came in and was heralding the gospel of you also need to be circumcised, we'd go, let's find another church. It's strange to us 2,000 years later. But to them, they were going gospel plus. Gospel plus law. Gospel plus circumcision. And you go, well, that's not necessarily all bad. It's innocuous. But what Paul calls it here is evil. And in verse 10, they, they're starting to observe the days, the months, the seasons, and the year. 
they're going back to this Jewish calendar and these feast days and they're saying, we need to do this as a fundamental, critical part of the Christian faith. And Paul is calling it evil. Which leads to his worry and concern about them laboring in vain. And as I thought about this, it's like maybe today, you know, we would see churches that are more about uh, the old cliche, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We go, whoa, watch out, guys. That's not what Paul's doing here. That's not their problem. There is a church that had that problem. You can read First and Second Corinthians. And so it's not that the Bible doesn't necessarily concern it with uh, that kind of living and outside of, you know, the, the guardrails of the gospel. Corinth is an interesting case study in that, but it's not Galatians. Galatians here is people that were adding to the gospel, that were adding rules and morals and law on top of the good news of Jesus. And Paul says, it's evil. We, we have to realize how they, and really church people today, myself, have these tendencies and how subtly dangerous, and to use the language of Paul, how evil that can be. Martin Buber was a uh, Jewish philosopher in the early 1900s. He said this, since the primary motive of evil is disguise, one of the places evil people are most likely to be found is within the church. What better way to conceal one's evil from oneself as well as from others than to be a deacon or some other highly visible form of Christian within our culture? Evil people tend to gravitate towards piety for the disguise and concealment it can offer them. And I want to I tread lightly here. One for myself, I'm reading that and I'm like, oh, that's me. <laughs> And again, I, I want to, again, remind you, Corinthians is in the Bible. That's another message for another time. But the message that we're reading today is from Galatians. And it is a warning against evil in the church. That doesn't take the form of what we often think. It's an evil that disguises itself as goodness. And as we look at this, we reflect on this, and even see what Jesus said, it is the most severe terms in the Gospels, and even here with Paul, are for the religious. It's a subtle lie that we believe often that all of the evil in the world is outside of these walls, outside of our hearts, all with them. But what scripture does again and again and again is before any of that, it just holds up a mirror to our own hearts and our own lives. And it does call us to go speak the truth. It does call us to be a force of love in the world. But before it ever does that, it holds up a mirror and exposes our own hearts and tendencies. And, and you're all hearing this for the first time. I've been sitting with this text for two weeks. Paul's deep concern, I believe, comes from this place of having been in the exact camp that they were heading towards before his radical encounter with this knowing God. That's where his concern comes from, is he was this person. He had checked 
all the boxes. He had dotted all of his I's. He had crossed all the T's. He had it all together. And he realized after a radical encounter with the knowing God that it was evil and rotten at its core. That's what it was. So he gives them then the first command, which again, we have to look at, and it gave me pause. Here's the first command in all of Galatians. Verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. And I read this and I go, is that pride? Is that the same, and these aren't the same, but you know where Moses writes about himself in the third person that he was a very humble man? I always love that little nugget in there. It's inspired by the Spirit, I don't doubt that. Or, you know, in John's Gospel where he writes about the apostle whom Jesus loved, and you're like, that's you, dude. <laughs> Become as I am. And I confess my cynicism is not always the best. It's never the best lens to see the scripture. So I, I put that out there. But here's where I think Paul is coming from and how such a thing is actually inspired by the Holy Spirit and landed in this text is this. Paul had a singular concern for them and every church that he planted and pastored and influenced. And his singular concern was Christ in them, through them, and for them. He said uh, to the church in Colossae that Christ might be all and in all. Paul was a rare breed that I don't know that we have uh, experienced many people like Paul where he has a singular concern. He doesn't have a secret agenda. He doesn't have mixed motives. He had a singular concern for this church, and it was Christ being formed in them. And as I reflected on this and then was listening to another podcast on Friday about something completely different, it, it caused me to pause and reflect on the inputs and influences that are in my own life that I welcome in. What are those voices that I listen to, and what is their concern for my heart? And often, it's a lot more than Christ formed in me. And those sources and resources and books and podcasts and YouTube videos and all that, they can be helpful, but everybody has some sort of agenda. That's part of human nature. But we need to stop and evaluate and go, is this forming Christ in me? And so it's kind of a call for an all of life inventory to go, what are the influences? What are the voices? What are the things that I'm allowing into my life? And how is that or is that not Influencing Christ being formed in me. I think often it goes towards those other things. Well, this could make me healthier, wealthier, better off, climb the ladder, do whatever. And those things in and of themselves aren't horrible. But if that's the primary and, and number one voice, and that's the thing we're thinking through the most, is Christ being formed in us? And then... Flip the script, other side of the same coin. What's my concern as I am influencing being with people, as I'm doing family things, as I'm talking to my kids, as I'm pastoring people, as you're working, as you're going throughout your life in relationships? What's your primary chief concern? Is it Christ being formed in people? Is it creating a culture in your work, in your home, in your rest of Christ-likeness? 
Again, not out of this religiosity, a whole list of shoulds and what you have to do, but a singular concern of seeing Christ formed in yourself and others. It's helpful time to time to go, just do an evaluation of the inputs into your life, the people you're following on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. How is that affecting Christ formed in you? And you go, it's not. Maybe take a break. Or what you're putting out into the world. If it's not, maybe take a break. <laughs> maybe reevaluate. May shift it. Again, not towards this religiosity. You have to, you should, but an evaluation of how this is affecting yourself and others. This command calls for evaluation of our inputs and influences and their effect on Christ's creation in us and others. And then Paul gives, uh, through verse 12 and all the way down into 20, he gives more context, he gives examples and a plea with them. We see uh, where Paul talks about that he has something going on in his life, he's not real specific, it's led theologians and scholars to go, oh, maybe Paul's thorn in the flesh that he talks about otherwise, and here he talks about that they would give him his eyes, maybe Paul had something going on with his ojos, with his eyes that was, you know, uh, messed up and, and, you know, they put that in that. I don't know. But Paul is messed up in some sort of way. He comes and he preaches the gospel to them. And there's this beautiful relationship that's formed. Where they would give him, if it is an issue with his eyes, they would have plucked out their eyes and gave him to him if that would have worked. But then something shift. Something took place. He begins telling them the truth about the heresy that had entered in. And this begins to separate them. And what the Judaizers and the liars in their midst were doing was taking them from the grip of God or inviting them to exchange that grip of God for clouds. To quote Colossians, Paul says, those things, days, months, seasons, years, those were a shadow of things to come, but the substance, the content, the concrete is Christ. They're saying, no, 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 go back to the shadows. Go back to what that all pointed to, but the substance, Paul says, is Christ. They're attempting to shift them from the grip of God to a cloud, and Paul tells them the truth, and they bristle. Tim Keller colors this out a little bit more. He says, unlike his opponents, Paul is not telling the Galatians what they would like to hear. He is telling them the truth in verse 16, and he is being vilified for it. Paul would love to be able to be affirming and gentle, to be able to change my tone, verse 20, but he would rather hold out the gospel than receive the praise. After all, it is the gospel which brings people to Christ's dependence, shapes people in Christ's likeness, and provokes people to Christ's praise. The gospel frees us from the need for people's approval and adoration so we can confront and anger the people we love if that is what is best for them. Now, before you get all excited about that sentence, keep reading. And although it does not always work, this is the only kind of communication that really changes people. If you love a person so selfishly that you cannot risk their anger, you won't ever tell them the truth they need to hear. If... On the other hand, you tell a person the truth they need, but with the harshness and not the agony of a lover, they won't listen to it. So before you get all excited, husbands and wives, about your car ride home, <laughs> well, John said, <laughs> and you have to understand the motive behind it. 
and that's Christ formation. And if I'm just putting my, my stuff out there for you all, my tendency in truth-telling is not primarily for Christ's formation, at least in my own family, it's just simply for control. It's simply so I can be better understood and it's really for me. And I need to repent of that. But when you see somebody, including yourself, that is off track, then there is this formula of truth in love that doesn't always go the way that we want it. And you've been there. Any parent, probably especially those of you that have adult kids that have lived this out of, I told you the truth and I love you, and you have not received it, what do you do? Well, again, keep this singular concern at the front of your brain. The Judaizers, they had a message that was selfish gain. It came under the guise of encouragement, but it was only for the elevation of themselves, which then can go, yeah, you and I probably have been used in the religious world by pastors and churches. And again, in no uncertain terms here, Paul just calls it what it is. It's evil. When we use people as a commodity and discard them when they're no longer useful, it's evil. And Paul's core for them, and I think for us, the Spirit's concern for us, is Christ being formed in them. He gives this great metaphor of him being pregnant, childbirth, this anguish, this, this desire to see Christ birthed in them, formed in them. He set on telling them the truth, not being seen as right, not winning an argument, not keeping control, but seeing Christ form. And Paul, throughout this letter, and you can see throughout the others and, and measure them against each other, the message didn't change. But often the heart and the response did. And so you can get somewhat of a diagnosis of how one church, one group of people can decline and desert Jesus. And how evil can affect us in subtle but significant ways, creating a sick society. And so I think the message for us today, the appeal for us today, the warning for us today, is to remember to behold Jesus alone. And be about Jesus alone. And see one another through the lens of Jesus alone. I'm just reminded of the culture that can be created within churches when Jesus Christ is no longer center. And it's never a moment where we're like, okay, guys, we're going to leave Jesus and be about whatever fill-in-the-blank is for any given church. Everyone has their own unique individual culture and style and whatever, but we're going to move away from Jesus and really focus on whatever that blank Maybe today the hot topic is like, let's get off of Jesus and let's really harp on politics today on one side or the other. And it's not that, oh, you find a happy medium in between this left and right dichotomy. It's that you stay on Jesus. You keep Jesus front and center. You behold Jesus. And as you behold Jesus, uh, you become and you see Jesus in one another. Jen Wilkin has this quote, I believe I've used it before. It says, uh, it has been said that we become what we behold. 
believe there's nothing more transformative to our lives than beholding God in his word. After all, how can we conform to the image of God who we have not beheld? And so that's the call for us. The concern for us is not divorcing our identity of who we are and what we have in Christ from what we do. Divorcing identity from activity. And that's the danger for every life, for every church, is to separate out these two. And so that leads to a consistent and necessary evaluation of who and what we're worshiping in life, of who and what we're allowing into our hearts, and be honest about the lies that we're tempted to lean into. And that's why we are attempting to place Christ at the center of our church, of our gatherings, of our communities. This is why we structure things the way we do in our gatherings. We don't put psalms in the beginning and read them out together because it's like, well, we have to do something to get people to sit down. So ah, throw some verses in there. No, it's intentional. Every single step of our gatherings of what we do, when we start that together out loud, we're acknowledging who God is. We're reading his word out loud together. We aren't coming in here as a bunch of spectators. Okay, pastor, band, perform, and we shall receive. No. We're participating together in life. And we start by reorienting our attention towards who God is and what he's done in his word. We then sing together and admire and confess and praise and give glory to God. And then it's intentional that the word is read without interruption. Because we're elevating that against and above whatever I or Anthony is about to say. Anthony often says, and I believe it, but I'm a little more insecure, that the best part is the reading of God's word. And I go, eh, got pretty good teaching here. <laughs> and I joke and I kid, but it's the truth. It's the truth. We elevate God's word. And then we're instructed and informed and, and hopefully the spirit is moving in our hearts and lives and applying that word to where we are. We don't just go, okay, good word, that's it. That's the pinnacle. No, we continue in response. Where one of God's people within the life of the church shares about communion and collectively we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we've been commanded to do and are formed and shaped in that, again, together as a family. And then it's intentional that we pray together at the end that we are uh, formed and shaped and sent to be a people of prayer that happens together. And I realize because I am a part of this church and part of leadership in this church, we don't have a perfect church and that formula is not it and only it and that's gospel. No, it's attempting though to place Jesus in our lives and maintain that he's center. That's why I don't teach every single stinking week. That's why the, pul the pulpit is shared, because we want it to be about Jesus. Leadership is shared. The books are open. We want it to be about Jesus. And friends, it's open that if you see a subtle shift, you have the input with myself, Anthony, the elders, to go, hey, and at a minimum, we give you the time of day, listen, and likely, if you're right, repent. I've been confronted after a teaching before. I'll never forget this particular Sunday where I went off on a little bit of a soapbox and, and one of the members of our church came up to me right over there and called me on it and was so absolutely right. 
and my tone on this given subject has had to change since then. Eschatology. <laughs> but we want to be about Jesus. Consistently beholding, seeing, worshiping, following, inviting. And remembering when Paul says, become as he is to this church. I think in a similar way, he's echoing Jesus. In other places, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And what did Jesus say to those first disciples? What was the invitation? Come, follow me. That invitation is open to us still today. And it prevents us from getting wonky in our lives, in our church, in who we are, and what we do. We don't divorce our identity and our activity. We behold and we become like Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you, Jesus, would protect this church, this people, from the evil that can uh, lurk in our midst and from the comfort we have in hiding behind a guise of religiosity. Where we need repentance here today, God, would you bring it? Where we are being influenced by evil, where we are hiding behind religiosity, God, would you, in your love, expose that, remove it, so that we might find ourselves safe under the shadow of your wings, not our works. And so as we respond now, Jesus, would you continue forming your life in us, leading us by still waters, placing us in green pastures and restoring our soul. Please do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.